Well, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to uh, Colossians chapter 3. And uh, if you're wondering what's happened to the book of Acts, uh, I'll just tell you, we're going to take just a a two-week break from our study in the book of Acts together. We've been at that since the fall. But because we are wrapping up uh, one year and beginning a new year, I thought it would be fitting for us uh, to spend some time, to spend two weeks exploring our identity in Christ and what it looks like or what it means to live that out in our day-to-day lives. What are some of the challenges? What are some of the strategies that we ought to employ? And so we're going to spend two weeks exploring uh, Colossians chapter 3 together. Uh, You can think of this as kind of a two-week mini-series, kind of a living in Christ and a living out Christ uh, focus to it. And I entitled this first message, Kill or Be Killed. Uh, I know that sounds like the happiest of messages as we start into a new year, and maybe it requires just a little bit of explanation uh, for you, but really that idea, uh, kill or be killed, I, it, it dates back for me at least all the way back to 2014. In 2014, uh, Andy and I went to see the movie Exodus together, um, terrible movie by the way, it was uh, super boring and super terrible. I fell asleep in it at one point. The best part about that movie was one of the trailers that came on before the movie started. And um, the trailer was for the movie American Sniper. Uh, American Sniper tells the story of Chris Kyle, who is purported to be the most lethal sniper in American history. And the trailer was basically just one scene. Uh, Showed a couple of American snipers on a roof during the Gulf War in Iraq. And they were positioned there. They were looking for suspicious activity. Uh, An Iraqi woman and her son, who looks to be about 12 years old, come out of a building, and they start moving towards an American convoy. She, uh, the the sniper has his uh, scope fixed on the woman. She appears to reach into her cloak and she gives something to her son. And then he starts making his way towards the American convoy. The sniper's finger is on the trigger of the gun. This is all, this is all that's in the trailer. And he has to make a split-second decision. Does he shoot or not? And the trailer ends without answering that question. That was sort of the purpose of the trailer, to get you intrigued enough to go and see this movie. Um, I went home that night and I thought, I'm not going to wait for the movie to come out. I downloaded the book on my Kindle because I needed to know the answer. Like that night, what actually happened? Uh, I'm not necessarily recommending the movie, but the scene is actually a little bit different in the book. It's just the woman and what she pulls out of her cloak uh, is a Chinese grenade and she pulls the pin on it and she starts making her way to, towards that American convoy and he does in fact shoot her before she can get too close to the convoy. It was the first time he killed anybody. Now, I know this is a a Mennonite church and all, and it it, it might seem like a really odd way to begin a message, but there is something in that, in that picture that has great application to our spiritual lives. The Puritan theologian John Owen once wrote, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Kill or be killed. 
is really what, the, what he was saying. Kill or be killed is what that sniper was thinking. Either I take this shot or we all end up dead. And that's essentially the message of the passage we're looking at today in Colossians chapter 3. So let me read for you Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. <clears throat> and here's what it says to us. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. You can be seated. Well, there's not a lot of uh, beating around the bush in this passage. Uh, Paul is pretty direct in telling us what we need to do So I want to jump in right into what we see here. And the first thing we are told is that we need to deal radically and ruthlessly with sin in our lives. That's really just another way of saying, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Kill or be killed. And we need to hear these types of truths in these types of terms. Paul says in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Sam Storms expands on that idea by saying this, kill it, put it to death, execute it, don't let it live another second. Take whatever steps are necessary to eliminate it from your life, tolerate no compromise, take no prisoners, deal ruthlessly and radically with it no matter how small or seemingly insignificant it may appear. That's how we ought to approach besetting sin in our lives. We're to kill it, we're to execute it, to show no mercy. Now there are a number of different metaphors that are used in the New Testament to describe the Christian life. Sometimes the Christian life is described as a walk. So we get instructions like this one from Ephesians 5, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Walking is a metaphor for living and the Christian life can be summed up as a long walk in the same direction. Sometimes the intensity of that is ratcheted up a little bit, and the Christian life is described more like a run. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we read, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. The book of Hebrews makes a similar comparison when it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, walking and running are good and appropriate metaphors for describing the Christian life. 
But there's another metaphor that I think we sometimes forget about, and that is the metaphor of a battle or a war that is taking place. And several times in the New Testament, Christians are referred to as soldiers, not civilians. So there's a familiar passage in Ephesians 6 that describes the Christian life like this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. I think it's important for us to rediscover this metaphor of the Christian life as a battle that is going on. And I don't mean this in a militaristic kind of way. What I mean is that it's so easy to get into a really casual attitude about sin in our lives. We behave or we live like it's peacetime or like we're in a ceasefire or like we live in a demilitarized zone. I guarantee you that is not the enemy or that the or that is not the approach that our enemy takes. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So if that's the call then how do we kill it? I want to highlight two truths related to this. The first one is that dealing with sin requires us to be specific. Notice again what Paul says. He says, put to death what is earthly in you or whatever is earthly in you. Now that would cover a pretty broad spectrum of things, but then he specifies the kinds of things he's talking about. What are we supposed to put to death? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now it may be that all of the terms have some connection with sexual sins, but for sure the first three do. So I want to just kind of address that for a few minutes. You know, if you ask the average person today to define sexual immorality, they, they would, you get a really wide spectrum of answers. Some will say, well, you know, that means a crossing of the line like adultery, or maybe they'd say, well, you know, I don't even know if it's that, but maybe it's uh, pedophilia or something like that. Or some, some would say to you, you know, I'm not actually really sure there's Any such thing as that, we're pretty much free. We've kind of moved beyond all that. We're free to do whatever we want to do. But Paul is quite specific. There is a category of sexual immorality. And the Greek word that's used for immorality here is the word porneia. Now, that's a word that will sound familiar to you because it's the word we get our word pornography from. Porneia, as it's used in the New Testament, refers to any and all kinds of improper sexual relations. Any sexual activity outside the context of marriage is sexual immorality. And the biblical teaching on sexual practices has always been chastity before marriage and fidelity or faithfulness within marriage. That's the standard. And Paul tells us to take our propensity for sexual immorality and to put it to death to execute it, to deal ruthlessly and radically with it. 
Now, part of being specific about it means that we don't give ourselves a lot of wiggle room. We're not trying to figure out, well, how close to the edge can I get? Paul says it this way elsewhere. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Jesus said it this way. He said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, Jesus is not talking about self-mutilation. He's saying that we need to be deliberate, ruthless, about rooting this stuff out of our lives. Now, I know that's not a popular message today. Someone might push back and say, well, come on, that's the first century. I mean, we've moved so far beyond that. We've come a long way since then. We've got a much more enlightened understanding of sexuality. Well, it might be good just to, re- to remind ourselves that Paul's words here were no less radical in the first century than they are today. The Roman Empire was a highly sexualized culture. Prostitution, ho- homosexuality, the licentiousness practiced at the Roman bathhouses were commonplace things. And I tell you that to say that, that while on the one hand it can seem like sexual enticements are more forceful than ever... The call to sexual fidelity has always been countercultural. And we need to make sure that we take our cues from what the Bible tells us and not what our culture tells us. But more than just than this just teaching us that we need to be specific, these verses help us understand that dealing with sin requires us to get to the root of the problem. Put to death, therefore. What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So Paul starts with the outward behavior, right? Sexual immorality. But then notice that he drills down into passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Now, why covetousness? I mean, why does Paul seem to make a left turn here? Why does he go through this list of sexual sins and then suddenly suddenly shift gears to bring up covetousness? Well, it could be that Paul is just referring to another form of evil desire, another uh, manifestation of it, right? If sensuality doesn't satisfy us, maybe materialism will. And maybe this is something that changes over time. One writer quipped, he said, when you're 17, you dream of a summer romance. When you're 47, you dream of a summer home. Maybe that's the natural progression. Maybe these are just different ways of of talking about the same type of temptation. And when you stop to think about it, temptations around sex and materialism are two of the largest temptations we face. But I wonder if Paul's point is not so much about the different categories of temptation, but about the fact that all temptation can be traced back to the same root cause. 
When you go back and, and look at the Ten Commandments, and you look at the Tenth Commandment specifically, the commandment against coveting, you read this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now here in Colossians 3, Paul equates covetousness with idolatry. And I would just say to you that idolatry is at the root of all our sins. Now, we've been over this ground before, but if we think of idolatry as as something that only existed in the past or only exists in in foreign lands somewhere, we're mistaken. Idolatry is not just about bowing down to physical idols and statues. Idolatry occurs any time we substitute anything for God. Let me just say that to you again. Idolatry occurs any time we substitute anything for God. And this is what I mean by getting to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is not the external behavior. The root of the problem is the idolatry that resides in our heart. And dealing only with the external behavior is like dealing with weeds only by cutting off the top of them, right? It's going to be spring soon, hopefully, and you'll be out there again mowing your lawn. If all you do is just mow over the top of those weeds, you'll never solve the problem. In fact, you'll spread them even more. The the only way to deal with them is to get to the root of them and deal with that. You've got to attack the roots. Now, they might not think of it this way, but the reason people commit sexual immorality, the worship of sex is because they think they will find greater satisfaction in that type of relationship than they will in a relationship with God. The reason people get wrapped up in materialism, the worship of stuff, is because they think they will find more comfort, more security, more satisfaction in things than they will find in God. John Piper put it this way, sin is what you do when you're not satisfied in God. Sin is what you do when you're not satisfied in God. Now, I want to be clear here. This is not an idolatry is not the best. There's a better way to live message. There's actually real consequences to this. Look at what Paul says in verse 6. After telling us to put this to death, he gives us the reason why it's so important. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So why do we need to get to the root of the problem? Why do we need to take this so seriously? Because idolatry is a big deal to God. So if the tenth of the Ten Commandments is you shall not covet, the first of the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. And it's the first commandment for a reason. Violating that first commandment leads to violating all the other commandments. Uh, Listen to these words from Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes... 
namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. If you want a, a, a good assessment of contemporary society when it comes to issues of sexuality, Romans chapter 1 gives us the clearest picture of this. You exchange the truth of God and you wind up with complete chaos. Whatever specific issues Paul was dealing with in Romans chapter 1 can be traced back to a violation of the first commandment. So we need to deal radically and ruthlessly with sin in our lives. The second truth we see in this passage is that we need to live out our new identity. Listen now to verses 7 to 9. In these, you once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Paul's point here is that we are no longer what we used to be, or no longer who we used to be. And Paul reminds the Christians in Colossae of of what they used to be. He says, this is how you used to walk. This is how you used to live. This is the way you used to talk. But that is not who you are anymore. He says, you've taken off your old self along with its practices. So Paul's now changed metaphors. It's no longer put these things to death. But destroy your old clothes and wear your new ones, right? Christmas gives us a chance to do that, right? Get rid of those old ones. Start wearing the new ones. In the early 2000s, there was a television show called What Not to Wear. If you've ever seen an episode of it, uh, you have a picture of what Paul is talking about. That show would begin with candid footage of a woman whose friends think she needs an entirely new wardrobe. Early in the show, she would put on one, of, one or two of her favorite outfits. Then she would walk into a room of brightly illuminated mirrors. With 360 degrees of reflection, there was no place to hide. Every flaw in her fashion and physique was exposed before a national television audience. What a nightmare, right? And then it got worse because two fashion consultants would come in and they would tell her exactly what they think of what she's wearing. And their critique was always caustic. And then what would happen would be the good news part of the show. They would throw the woman's old clothes in the garbage. They would send her on a shopping spree to New York City $10,000 to spend. That's more or less what's described in these verses. We need to throw out, burn, get rid of our old wardrobe. Now, that can be hard to do. I mean, you know how it is. You just get really comfortable in some of your old clothes. I mean, I've got a hoodie 
that I would probably wear every day if Ilona would let me. Right? I just, I just, it's just comfortable. It's the thing I want to put on the moment I get home. My kids have some clothes that I'm like, are you, are you kidding me? Are you wearing that again? Like, don't tell them this. <clears throat> but Ilona and I sometimes just make those old clothes disappear. I mean, I, I remember our oldest son, Josh, had this Mariner's shirt. I mean, I love the Mariner's. But he had this Ken Griffey Mariner's shirt, just would wear it all. And when he went away to Bible college, we just tucked that thing into a bin somewhere. I don't know what happened to it. Disappeared. That is what you need to do with your, you need to put your old practices, your old self off. You need to get rid of them. And the types of things we need to get rid of are listed here by Paul as anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Now, the phrase from your mouth modifies all of them or governs all of them. But what all of these things have in common is not just that they are sins we commit with our mouths and the words that we say, but they're actually community-destroying sins. In other words, Paul's not just talking about anger as an emotion. He's talking about angry outbursts, the type of anger that results in verbal abuse. Malice is speech that expresses ill will towards others. The intention is to hurt someone. The word that's translated slander here is the word that is used for blasphemy when it's used in reference to God. So slander is really the opposite of praise. It's the intentional defaming and damaging of another person's name or reputation. Those are things we need to get rid of, root them out of our lives. The word get, that gets translated as obscene talk here is used only once in the New Testament, just, just right here. And the idea behind it is not so much about particular words that are on the list of things you cannot say, you know, as if you just sort of substitute, the, the, the Christian substitute for that word and it's okay. The focus is on the way those words tend to be used in an abusive fashion. Jesus gives us the spirit behind the Bible's instructions about these types of things when he says this. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now we hear that, you fool, that sounds kind of mild to us. But it's the spirit behind it that makes it such a big deal. And Paul says, you need to get rid of that stuff. Like, don't go back to it. Here in Colossians, Paul goes on to talk about lying. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, right? This is not who you are anymore. And lying is the ultimate community killer. I mean, it literally destroys relationships. When you find out someone has been lying to you, it is very hard to trust them, right? Now, we may have been any one of those things or all of them. But Paul reminds us this is not who we are anymore. That's not our identity. That is no longer our native tongue. 
These are, are, are the clothes we might have been comfortable in, but no longer. We've got a new identity. We're going to look at that more in more detail next week. <clears throat> so we are no longer what we were. Secondly, we are not yet what we need to be. So as you hear this, I want you to know I'm not advocating some kind of sinless perfectionism. Verse 9 says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And then verse 10 says, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We've put on the new self, which is being renewed. So renewal is a process. I think sometimes it's easy to read lists like this and just get discouraged, right? Get rid of your evil desires. Don't covet. Don't be angry. Don't use that kind of speech. And we can hear that and think, oh man, I've got so far to go. Now, now that's not a bad thing. There may have been a time where you didn't even recognize these things. Or maybe you recognize some of the behavior, the external behavior as being wrong but you didn't really think about your internal motivations and how the problem is actually deeper and resides in your heart. The fact that you see that now is a good thing. It means that God's Spirit is at work in your life. But renewal is a process. Paul says that our new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So bit by bit, we are being shaped to be more like Jesus. Some of the rough edges have to be sanded off. Now, that's not an excuse for status quo living. Our attitude should be like Paul when he says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. We've got to press on to this and press into this. So we're no longer what we used to be. We're not yet what we need to be. And then thirdly, we have to remember that we are what we are Because of Jesus. So the section ends in verse 11 by saying this. Here there is no, not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now when we come to this verse, we might think this, Paul's introducing a new idea here. I mean, what's the connection with with what he's just said? Now he's just been talking about the kind of sins, kind of things that destroy community. Now he's actually talking about what it is that makes us a community. All of the things that naturally divide people, their ethnicity, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, whether they were circumcised or uncircumcised, their socioeconomic position, whether they were barbarians or whether they were slaves or free, those distinctions are all done away with. Why? Well, Paul says it's because Christ is all and is in all. See, the most important thing about you 
is not any of your external identifications, the things that mark you or identify you. The most important thing about you is if Christ is in you and you're in Christ. In the book of Galatians, Paul says it like this, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now again, we have to remember how radical this idea was. The Roman Empire was made up of a wide diversity of people, and the Romans liked it that way. They knew that different cultural, different ethnic groups would stick to themselves. They would not then unite against the empire. And the church was a different thing entirely. Distinctions of nationality and ethnicity and social status were wiped out completely at the foot of the cross. Now, that's so important for us to understand in and of itself, but what's even more important to understand is what it is that caused the change. And what Paul tells us, the the thing that produced the change is that Christ is all and is in all. And if you read through the book of Colossians, you will find that we, you never get too far without being brought back to Jesus. So let me wrap this up by bringing us back to Jesus. You know, when we read a passage like this, there's two different ways we can respond. There are two things that we can do with our sin when our sin gets revealed. I don't remember who said it, but someone said that there are two mountains that we can take our sin to. One is Mount Sinai. The other is Mount Calvary. Now, Mount Sinai is the place where God revealed the law to Moses. So we can read through the vice lists here or elsewhere in the New Testament, and if we're honest, we have to plead guilty before them. So we can acknowledge we violated the law of God. We can cite chapter and verse. And we can beat ourselves up for it. When we take our sins to Mount Sinai, it leads to self-pity or self-loathing. We know we're guilty. We know we deserve the consequences. But we end up hating ourselves or hating the consequences more than we hate the sin. But when we take our sin to Mount Calvary, when we take it to the cross, something different happens. Stephen Charnock, a Puritan theologian from the 17th century, said that there's a difference between a legalistic conviction of sin and an evangelical conviction of sin. See, a legalistic conviction of sin arises from a consideration of God's justice, but an evangelical one arises from a consideration of God's goodness. A legally or a legalistically convinced person cries out, I've exasperated a power that is as the roaring of a lion. I have provoked the one who is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, whose word can tear up the foundation of the world. An evangelically convicted person says, I've incensed a goodness that is like the dropping of the dew. I have offended a God who has stretched out to me as a friend. See, when you take your sin to the cross, you realize firstly that it's been paid for 
and that no amount of beating yourself up for it is going to make it any more paid for. But second, you, you realize that Jesus had to go to the cross for your sin. And this causes us not to hate ourselves, but to love our Savior and to hate our sin. So the gospel doesn't just tell us that our old wardrobe was ugly. It gives us a brand new wardrobe. It doesn't just tell us our old identity is a thing to be ashamed of. It gives us a new identity. And that new identity comes because Christ is all and is in all. Now, I think a fitting way for us to wrap up this morning is to celebrate the Lord's Supper today as we do each week. But I want to stay in the book of Colossians, and I just want to read these verses for you from chapter 2. And hear this as God's word to you. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. Right? That record of all of our transgressions, the debt that we owed, it's been nailed to the cross. So let's pray as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Father, we thank you for your grace, your goodness. We thank you for the fact that you have made us new creatures in you. And we don't even know how all of that works. Some of it's a mystery to us, but we know that by the death of Jesus on our behalf, by our acceptance of that, we've been given a new life in you. And God, we pray as we enter into what for us is a new year, that we would not live out our old identity, not go back to our former ways, but that we would live out this new identity that you've given us. And that we would do that by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.